This morning, I'd like for us to look together in the book of Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Last week, we looked at Acts 1 and verse number 8 as we considered the mission of the church, which is missions. It's the mission of the church to go with the gospel to all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. And in the message last week, I gave you some, very, some specifics about how the church fulfills that mission. The church supplies the missionaries, the church sends the missionaries, and the church supports the missionaries. And Lord willing, uh, beginning today and over the next uh, couple weeks, we're going to look at each of those specific roles in detail, starting today with the role of the church to supply the missionaries. Have you ever wondered to yourself, where do missionaries come from? I know I've met missionaries that I'm like, where did you come from? But that's different. Most missionaries I've met are just phenomenal people that I am thrilled and privileged to, to know. But where do missionaries come from? Well, they certainly don't grow on trees, nor should they come from Bible colleges or Christian schools. God's plan is for missionaries to be cultivated through the ministry of the local church. And I want us to see this pattern demonstrated to us today in the New Testament, primarily in the book of Acts. And so I want to begin here in Acts chapter 13, verse number 1. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Our Heavenly Father, as we study Your Word today, I pray that we would appreciate the wisdom and the the simplicity of your plan for reaching the world with the gospel, and that we would be encouraged to do our part, whatever that might be, and to be willing to do whatever else it is that you may want us to do. No matter what season of life, no matter uh, how settled we may be, may we all be willing to go wherever, to share the gospel with whomever, as you've instructed us to be witnesses for you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look through the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts, we see a pattern that emerges of individuals who are actively ministering in a local church setting, being called of God to leave where they are to go somewhere else in order to further the gospel. And here in Acts chapter 13, we have one of those examples. It's the example of Paul and Barnabas. They were ministering in a particular church at Antioch, verse 1 says, when God moved through that local assembly to direct them to go out and plant churches from city to city. We'll see it again in Acts chapter 15 as a man by the name of Silas was chosen to travel with Paul in part because of his good testimony amongst the believers. We see it again in Acts chapter 16 when Timothy is selected to be a part of the missions team because he was well reported of by the believers in Derby and Lystra. 
And in every one of these instances, we find that the local church, the local body of believers, played an instrumental role in supplying the missionaries, supplying the workforce to do God's will of preaching the gospel across the world. Now, the purpose of the local church is to evangelize the lost and edify the believers to the glory of God so that the work of the ministry can continue on. And part of what is involved in the work of the ministry, that big umbrella, is the work, what we call missions, global evangelization, taking the gospel from here to there, wherever there may be. And so it is the duty of the church then, as we fulfill the Great Commission, to train believers to be witnesses and encourage believers to be willing to go wherever God would have them go to share the gospel with whoever needs it. And this morning, I really want to emphasize this truth to you this morning, that we cannot rely on parachurch organizations. And by that, I mean organizations that exist outside the local church that may be helpful to the local church, but they're not the local church. We can't rely on them to do the work of supplying the missionaries. It is our job as a local church to do our part to supply the workforce to reach the world. Notice, first of all, again, the pattern of the church supplying missionaries that we see in the New Testament. Back in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 9, for instance, Jesus referred to lost souls as the harvest, a harvest of souls. He said that they were like grain that was ripe unto harvest in the book of John. He said that the field is the world. And that harvest is the souls of men. And in in Matthew chapter 9, he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Now these were the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said that the laborers are few. So when preachers get up, missionaries get up, and evangelists get up before our congregation, and and they dwell upon the fact that there are very few in comparison uh, that are willing to go, they're not being uh, overly dramatic. They're really just sharing with you the same message that Jesus has stated here in Scripture, that there is a shortage of workers. The laborers are few. But I think... When it comes to the spiritual harvest, it's kind of like the labor market here in America. It's not that there aren't people that can work. It's that there aren't enough people who will work. It, it astounds me sometimes that when, I, when I look at the statistics of, of um, unemployment in our country, you know, you hear numbers like 4%, 5%, 6%, and in that range, and you think, well, that's, that's really pretty good. 94% of Americans are working. Well, actually, though, that's not how that works. When you begin to dive into those numbers, you find that they take out all these different classes of people, including the people who have dropped out of the labor force, meaning that they can work, they just don't want to anymore. And when you actually look at the percentage of Americans who are actively working, it's actually closer to only 50%. Only 50%. Now, some of those that are not working, obviously, they've, they've, they've uh, worked for many years, they've retired, and they've earned their rest. Great. I have no problem with that whatsoever. But there is a great number of people who could be working, who should be working, but won't. 
And when it comes to the work of missions, our problem is that there is not, that there's, there's not enough pull to, to draw from. The problem is there aren't enough willing to go. And part of the problem for that falls back on the local church. Yes, there's an individual aspect, but there's also a corporate aspect. As churches de-emphasize the importance of evangelization and missions, the natural result is that fewer people are volunteering and answering God's call to go. Where are these laborers going to come from that Jesus said, we are to pray that God will send forth into His harvest? They're not going to just appear and materialize out of thin air. God works through the local church to supply the missionaries. The book of Acts is a history about the birth and the growth of the early New Testament church. And as we read through it, we find this pattern emerge. And it's repeated throughout the book that those who are called to what we know as missions are called through the local church. Now we're here in Acts chapter 13. Here's the first example of this pattern that we'll, we'll note today. And that is the example of Paul and Barnabas. They were there in the church in Antioch. They were already ministering to the Lord. They were serving God when God called them to leave there and go somewhere else. Now, up until this point, they have already been actively involved in ministry. Turn back to Acts chapter 11. And in fact, they already had a successful church plant. Paul and Barnabas. In Acts chapter 11 and verse 25, it says, Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it came to pass, a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And so here we see that they were already involved in the ministry of the local church. We come to Acts chapter 13 and they're still involved there. They were actively serving in the church that they were in. It says that they were among the prophets and the teachers of that local church. It says that it was as they ministered to the Lord and fasted that the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. So God called them to leave there and go other places and establish churches. But the, the, the significant point here is that this was occurring in the context of a local church. Turn over to the book of Acts chapter 15. We'll see another example of this. Acts chapter 15, we have the great Jerusalem council. This is when the believers got together in, a, in Jerusalem to discuss whether or not Gentiles had to keep the Old Testament law in order to be saved. There were some, particularly those who were, had previously been Pharisees, who said, yes, they have to keep the law. And there were others who said, no, that's not necessary. That's adding works to salvation. And so there was this discussion. And uh, from this discussion, there emerged some clarity for the early church that it was not necessary for the Gentiles to keep the law in order to be saved. That faith alone is what salvation is all about. And so there were, uh, they had then a message to send back to the Gentile churches and they put it in writing in the form of letters. And there were certain men that were chosen uh, to, to take um, those letters out. We get down to the end of the chapter and we find that Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to leave. And this is that, that instance where Paul and Barnabas had a little bit of a disagreement. There was a little bit of a a kerfuffle, if you will, between the two of them, and it all revolved around a fellow by the name of John Mark. 
John Mark had traveled with, with them previously, but at some point in their journey, he left them. And apparently it was not under great circumstances because it annoyed Paul to the point that he said, I don't want him traveling with me anymore. Barnabas, however, felt like there was still uh, uh, some uh, possibility that John Mark could end up being a, a profitable servant of the Lord. So he wanted to take his nephew with him. That was the relation there. And so Paul said, no, he's not going. And Barnabas said, yes, he is. And Paul said, no, he's not. Barnabas said, yes, he is. And the contention was so sharp between them, the Bible says that they went separate ways. So Barnabas took John Mark. But notice in verse number 40, it says that Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren under the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia confirming the churches. So as they parted ways, and this was an instance where, where the result was the gospel was furthered in both directions that Paul and Barnabas went. But Paul chose Silas. But what's significant about this is that this decision was not made at random or in a vacuum. Paul specifically chose Silas because it tells us he was recommended by the brethren. We go back in chapter 15 and we find the same pattern that Silas was already actively serving the Lord. In verse 22, he was one of the men that was chosen um, uh, to be an official representative of this council to take the message to the believers. And in verse 32, we find that Silas, along with another disciple named Judas, had gone and they were sharing the message with Gentiles believers. And it says that Judas and Silas, again I'm reading verse 32, being prophets also themselves, exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. So Silas was already actively serving God through the ministry of local church when the brethren recommended him to Paul. Now we don't know exactly how that conversation went, but what we do know is that God worked through that body of believers to call another person to go somewhere else in order to preach the gospel. Turn to the next chapter, Acts chapter 16. Immediately after this, they went out. And uh, verse number 1 of Acts 16, Then came he to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman which was a Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him, and took and circumcised him because of the Jews that were in those quarters, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep, that were ordained of the apostles and elders were at Jerusalem. So Paul chooses Silas, they head out, they come to Derby and Lystra, and as they're there, they begin to hear about a young man by the name of Timothy. Timothy has a, a unique background in that his mother was a Jew, a Jewish believer, a Jewish Christian. His father, however, was a Greek, so there was a, a mixed ethnicity there, but there's also a bit, pretty big indication that his, his father was not a believer because later when Paul would write to him, he would recognize his mother's faith and his grandmother's faith, but not his father's faith. And so this was Timothy's background, but in spite of that background, he had become a very solid believer that had a great reputation amongst the other Christians so that they began to report to Paul about this guy Timothy. All of the believers, the brethren, verse number 2 of Acts 16, that were at Lystra and Iconium. Timothy was already actively serving God and he had such a good testimony that the believers spoke highly of him to Paul and Silas. And so Paul said, hey, 
you need to come with me. Why don't you get on board? Help us as we're going to go and preach the gospel and plant churches. In each of these examples, we see God actively working through local churches and local bodies of believers to supply the workforce to spread the gospel. That is not something to gloss over. That is a critical part of God's plan for the New Testament era. Now, I I know that there are some people who downplay and minimize the role of the local church. We don't need the local church. They said we can can evangelize the world through parachurch organizations and they can do a much better job of it, so some people say. And they might object to the assertion that missionaries are supposed to be supplied by the church. And I would imagine that if they're biblically savvy, they may try to use the story of Paul to try and prove their point. You remember Paul's conversion and calling in Acts chapter 9? He was on the road to Damascus when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him and told him that he was uh, to go into Damascus and he would meet a disciple who would tell him what to do. And some would say, see there, Paul was called by Jesus. He wasn't even connected to the local church. So you don't need the local church to be Uh, 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 as a part of becoming a missionary and being a missionary. You don't need the local church. It's not necessary. Just look at Paul. Well, I think there's some important details about Paul's conversion that actually prove the opposite. Turn over to Acts chapter 9 with me. Acts chapter 9. So Ananias comes and talks to him and and uh, Saul, as he's then named, he is, uh, um, he's, he is saved. We know as, at the end of this conversation, we know that he's a believer. And uh, it says in verse number 19, Acts chapter 9, verse 19, When he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the... What's that next word? Disciples that were at Damascus, which were at Damascus. Now, what would you call a local assembly of disciples, of believers in this particular location. What would you call that? What's the general word we use? A church. A church. So what did, what did Saul, as he was then named, do immediately upon his conversion? He aligned with a local church. Now, it wasn't going to be the only one he would ever align with because that, that was uh, um, not going to be his, his permanent dwelling place, but that was the first thing he did. Now go down later in the chapter. He leaves Damascus and he goes to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 9, verse 26. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. He tried to join up with the believers there. But they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. Now that makes sense because last thing they heard, this was the guy that wanted to kill and imprison Christians. So when he comes in and says, no, I'm a believer now, they were obviously a little skeptical. Verse 27 says, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And it was through Barnabas' influence that Paul was accepted into the body of believers in Jerusalem. Now what would we call that local assembly of believers in the city of Jerusalem? In general, we would call that a church. 
So again, we see that Paul, even though his calling and his conversion happened there on the road, and he was not aligned with any believers at that point, immediately upon his conversion, he aligned with the church, and it was through the church, as we've already seen in Acts chapter 13, that God's call was confirmed and he would eventually be sent out. And so... To use him as proof that you don't need a local church actually proves the opposite. Because even though he had a supernatural, extraordinary calling that none of us will ever have, Jesus is not going to appear personally to you on the roadside with a bright light that blinds you and call you to anything. That's not how God works today. But even though Paul had that experience, the role of the local church was still vital in his call to the mission field. So this is the pattern that God has laid out for us in Scripture. This message is not primarily about the local church and its importance and God's wisdom in establishing it, but let me just say that God knew what He was doing when He established the New Testament church. It is a perfect plan because it's God's plan. Now, it is not always implemented perfectly because God's perfect plan involves imperfect people like you and me. But God's plan to work through the local church in order to reach the world with the gospel in this age cannot be improved upon. It is God's plan. It's a perfect plan. So we see the pattern here that God has given us. Notice number two, very simply, the process of church supplying missionaries. We see that this is what God wants and how God wants it to happen. So let's talk about how is it going to happen. What does the church do then to supply the missionaries? How do we fulfill our role? Well, to summarize it, it is through the ministry of the local church that individuals are saved, discipled, and prepared to serve the Lord wherever God wants them. Notice these steps. The first part of the process is actually evangelism. If a church is going to supply the workforce for missions, preaching the gospel around the world, then the church must be preaching the gospel where it is. There has to be evangelism taking place in and through the immediate ministry of that local church. Now, when we think about that in the context of someone becoming a missionary, it should be an obvious first step that for someone to be a missionary, they must know Christ as their Savior, right? I mean, if you're going to go on the other side of the world and tell other people about Jesus, it's a logical first step to know for sure that you are saved. Well, as the local church evangelizes and shares the gospel, the natural result of that, of sowing that seed, is going to be fruits for our labor, which is the fruit of souls saved. That's the first step. If we want to see more missionaries go over there, we need to see more people get saved right here. We need to be taking the first step in the Great Commission of reaching our community with the gospel. Remember from Acts 1.8, Jesus said, Be witnesses in Jerusalem. That's right here. That's right now. And as you look at the the pattern then overall in the New Testament, you find that the Great Commission is a cycle. Believers share share the gospel with the lost who are saved, and they are then discipled. They learn 
the things that Jesus wants them to do, which includes sharing the gospel with the lost. And they, in turn, begin to share the gospel with the lost, and more people are saved. And the cycle continues, and as that cycle continues, the number of believers grows. As believers preach the gospel, the lost become believers who then preach the gospel. That's the pattern, that's the cycle. Never forget that Jesus' final instructions to His disciples are what we call the Great Commission. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I'm going to tell you very plainly, it is hypocritical for a church to claim it has a burden for missions when it has no burden to reach lost people in its own backyard. It's hypocritical. How can we say we genuinely love the lost and we genuinely want to reach the world with the gospel if we're not willing to go across the street? We can't put money in an offering plate to pay someone else to go over there and think that we're doing good and we're okay when we're not willing to go right where we are. And so our first responsibility, our first duty in fulfilling the role of supplying missionaries is to be evangelizing right here where we are. That's the first step of the process. The second step of the process follows right after that, and that is edification. So step one in the process, evangelization. Step two, edification. To edify simply means to build up. And it's a word that describes the purpose of the local church and the ministry of the local church to believers specifically. And so the church really has kind of two arms of ministry. If you want to break it down to, in very general ways, we have, we have a ministry to the lost, which is outward, but then we also have a ministry to the saved, which is inward. And that ministry to the saved is to edify, to, to build up believers, to disciple them to be the kind of followers of Jesus that he's called us to be. Turn to Matthew 28 with me. Matthew chapter 28. You might be able to quote these verses, but I want you to look at some of these specific details with me in Matthew 28. We're going to look at verses 18 through 20. Matthew 28, 18, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore... And teach all nations. See that right there? That is evangelization. Sharing the gospel with the lost. Verse 19 continues. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Baptizing the believers. That's the beginning of edification. Verse 20. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Literally, verse number 20 could be, could be said this way, making disciples of them, teaching them to observe all things. That's teaching them to obey the Word of God. That's a lifelong process that never stops. That is the ongoing duty of the church in fulfilling the Great Commission of edifying the believers. So the Great Commission includes both evangelization and edification. It's not one or the other, it's both. The church is responsible to teach Christians to obey God's commands and to grow in Christ's likeness. Now, what does this edification have to do with missionaries? Specifically, people leaving here and going there. Well, to put it simply, in order for a person to be qualified to go 
and plant a church and be involved in leadership in local churches and other places, they have to be spiritually mature. And part of the job of the local church is to train people and to teach them so that they can be spiritually mature. A missionary must have been discipled in order to make disciples. That's a simple enough pattern, right? A missionary must be discipled in order to make disciples. And so as the church disciples and edifies believers, it's participating in the process that will lead to some, not all, but some being called to serve God in other places. That is a part of the process. So we have evangelization, we have edification. And then number three, we have equipping. Equipping. And I had to use that word because apparently equipification is not a word. It is the job of the local church to equip those whom God has called or will call into missions to give them the tools that they need to minister over there. The church must be, uh, must be doing their part to equip those whom God will call. Ephesians chapter 4, a wonderful passage that tells us the purpose in part of the local church and it says in verse 11, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The reason God has established the local church is that through the ministry of the local church, believers would be perfected. That has the idea of matured, completed in, in the sense of putting into practice all the things that we ought to put in practice. For the perfecting of the saints, so that the saints can do the work of the ministry, so that the work of the ministry, the body of Christ, can be edified and can, be grow, can grow. Now, every single Christian is supposed to be a minister, a servant. Every Christian is supposed to serve the Lord. Every single Christian is supposed to be a preacher. I didn't say a pastor, I said a preacher, a proclaimer of the gospel. The ministry, quote-unquote, is not something done by a select small percentage of Christians. It's something that's supposed to be done by all believers. Every saint is supposed to minister to the Lord, but some are called to what we would say full-time vocational ministry. And those people whom God calls to leadership positions in the local church, be it evangelists, missionaries, pastors, and so on and so forth, those people must be prepared and equipped and ready for the job in order to do what God has called them to do. Paul said that a person must be proven before they were qualified for leadership in a local church. You can look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6 and verse 10. Both of those verses say the same thing, that whether it's a pastor or a deacon, they, they cannot be a novice, they cannot be unproven, that you have to have, there has to have been time for them to demonstrate that they are capable of doing what God, is, God wants them to do. And the church, the local church, is the proving grounds for those who are in ministry. And so as missionaries are being cultivated, as missionaries are being raised up, God wants to use the local church to equip them and to prove them so that they can accomplish what God wants them to accomplish. The local church gives them opportunities to practice, to grow, and to prove 
their qualifications for leadership. There are ways that this can be done outside the walls of the local church, be it uh, ministries in a nursing home or uh, going to uh, rescue missions or, or, or various different ways. Not all ministry has to take place at this specific address, but it is through the ministry of the local church that people are trained to continue on the ministry. That is God's pattern. I think of two specific areas that people must be equipped and proven in before they're ready to go out and preach the gospel elsewhere. First of all, their character must be proven. Their character. They, you have to know that they are a godly person. That's why God laid out qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1 in particular for those in leadership in the local church. They have to be proven that they are of godly character. When God calls someone a minister to the ministry of missions, He wants someone who is not idle or lazy, but already busy in the work of ministry. He wants someone who's already proven that they can survive uh, the, the, the challenges, uh, the, that they can endure the hardships. Because being in ministry is hard anywhere, but especially when you're in a foreign place, you're away from your network of, of friends and family and other believers, and in many ways you're in a very lonely situation oftentimes, it's going to be even harder. And if you can't stand for the truth in the comfort of your own home, then you won't stand for the truth on the mission field. God doesn't call missionaries to go and be sightseers. He calls them to be faithful servants of the gospel. Their character must be proven. Paul said, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. That implies that there's some searching of a person's character to discover what is this person really like. But number two, their doctrine must be proven. Missionaries should be prepared to teach and preach God's word in hostile places. That means they need to know what they believe through and through. They can't be wishy-washy. They can't be figuring it out. They need to know. The number of missionaries that I personally know that started out good but are no longer either on the field or no longer preaching solid doctrine, are, are, it's far too many. And I don't know all, in all instances what the problem was, but I do know that in many instances it's because that they were not really settled in their doctrine when they left. And the church has a responsibility of helping equip the missionary with that solid doctrine. 2 Timothy 2, verse number 2, Paul gave this instruction, "...the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also." So as a local church, we edify believers, we teach them, we equip them with sound doctrine. They then take that to other places and they repeat the pattern and so on and so forth. Before someone is sent out as a missionary from a local church, they should be trained in the Word of God and in ministry. And the church should be the place where the missionary gets the tools that he needs to put in his tool bag. I like thinking in those terms. It's an illustration that I, I can really uh, identify with. You think about preparing to serve the Lord. You've got a tool bag that is your life. And to be ready to do it, God wants to load that tool bag up. I, I do a lot of house projects and car projects. And over the years, as I've bought different tools that I need, I've got some really weird tools in my collection. I've got some really strange things. I didn't bring any today to show you. I could have done a little show and tell, but I've got some odd stuff here that I guarantee 
some of you, most of you, if not all of you, will never use. I have a tool that I picked up one time that's specifically for setting the angle of the teeth on a handsaw. I'm going to hazard a guess that none of you will ever have the need for that. But you know what? I've got that in my tool bag. So when the apocalypse hits and I'm sharpening handsaws by hand, got you covered. No doubt you have a lot of tools laying around your house, maybe a junk drawer full of them. But when you need something, you want to go to that tool bag and be able to pull it out. You might not have used it for three years, but it's handy to have when it's there, right? Well, God wants to use the local church to pack the tool bag of the missionary so that when they get out there, they have what they need. They are equipped to serve the Lord. I'm thankful for things like Bible colleges. I have two children that are enrolled in a Bible college right now, training to serve the Lord. That helps. But they understand, and that Bible college understands, that it doesn't take the place of the local church. I'm, ha- I'm glad for parachurch organizations, publishing ministries that print scriptures and lessons that, that uh, the churches can use. I'm glad for um, medical type uh, missions that are not that are parachurch organizations and that help in, in spreading the gospel. I'm glad for all of these things, but every one of them is subservient to the local church. They are only legitimate if they exist to support the local church in fulfilling its duty of taking the gospel throughout the world. And it is a delude... I just made up a word. I was going to say duty and delight. I just made it delude Okay, It's a duty and a delight to be a part of the process of raising up missionaries. But I do want to say there is a downside to it. It means that they have to leave us and go somewhere else. Sometimes in our selfishness, we don't want them to go. Whether it's our own children or someone else's, we enjoy having them as a part of our body of believers, a part of our congregation. We enjoy the ministry and the work that they're doing here. And sometimes they're so integral to the ministry that we think, how in the world could we even function without them? But if the church is going to do its part, then it must be willing to let them go. We'll discuss that more when we next consider the church's role in missions, which is sending missionaries. But we cannot send them if we do not supply them. So we, as a church, must work together to evangelize, to edify, and equip believers so that those who God calls to missions are prepared and proven and ready for the work that God has them to do. Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us to be a part of your process. And we thank you, Lord, that there were people in our lives who obeyed your instructions to share the gospel so that we could come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may we be for others what those people were for us, a witness and a preacher proclaiming the good news. And may we as a church have a sincere burden to reach lost people with the gospel and to see ministers of the gospel raised up through our own congregation and sent out to other places that your work would continue and be multiplied 
And that more and more souls would be saved as a result. Lord, give us a true, genuine burden for missions. I pray in Jesus' name. With heads bowed and eyes closed. I want to say that not every member can or should be in full-time ministry. I understand that. But we should all be willing to do whatever God wants. And we should work together to create an environment, a church culture that encourages those who God wants to be in full-time ministry. Making it easy for them to follow God's call, not harder. I think there's an important balance to maintain. We don't want people to who are not called to feel as if they're second-class Christians. But if the church is not raising up pastors and evangelists and missionaries and other Christian workers, then where are they going to come from? The church needs to be actively working to raise up new missionaries and full-time Christian workers because the world and the devil certainly are not going to encourage it. It's our duty and our delight to supply the workforce for world evangelization. And so by way of invitation this morning, I want to go back to a verse I read earlier where Jesus told His disciples, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that He would send forth laborers into His harvest. And I want to invite you this morning to pray that prayer, but with this understanding that what you're praying for is that God would use us. Philadelphia Baptist Church to raise up missionaries and other ministers of the gospel to get the gospel around the world.